You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Well, we're in our fourth week of taking a look at Calvinism versus Arminianism. And before we get started, let's bow for a word of prayer. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for this glorious day you brought forth. Father, we thank you that we're all here tonight because we are your children. And as your children, we want to know you greater and better. And what better way to understand our great and awesome God than to study the doctrines of grace and attempt to get a full understanding of what you have done on behalf of all those that are in Christ Jesus. Father, we can't thank you enough. We can't exalt you enough because what you've done on our behalf is so magnificent that it's, it's, it's almost staggering. But Father, we love you because as John said, you first loved us and that has been evident all the way through our study on the doctrines of grace. So tonight, as we look at this next portion of the acronym TULIP, guide us, be our teacher, and uh, give us understanding so that we could have clarity in this magnificent truth that we're going to look at tonight. We thank you for everyone that are here. We pray a special intention and prayer for Noah. Father, he found out that he's not going to be stateside when he gets his first, I guess, active duty. And uh, that duty is going to take him to Italy. Of course, that's a long ways from home. But I love the fact that at 18 years old, he makes mention that God has a plan for him. And Father, you certainly do. And we're excited to watch him and see him. And we will be excited to hear how you will... Take care of him so wonderfully as you've done already to all of us, in fact. And so we bow once again before you to say thank you. And as we dive into this subject, bless us. Bless each and every one of us. And we pray these things in the matchless name of your dearest son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, tonight we're taking a look at irresistible grace. The next component in... Calvinism, and I begin by presenting an analogy to you. Two college students attend a church worship service. Two strangers, they both hear a sermon on John chapter 14, verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now one of them believes and the other does not. Two boys In fact, twins are brought up in the same home with the same religious upbringing and instruction. One loves God and the other hates him. Their names, Jacob and Esau. Why? Why 
do two people in precisely the same circumstances react in opposite ways? Why? Before I continue, does anybody want to take a stab at that? Why do two people in precisely the same circumstances react in opposite ways? Why does one believe and the other reject Christ? Any thoughts? Any ideas? Rich? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Anybody else? Anybody else have any thoughts? Well, the biblical answer that I want to give tonight, and it's a numerous answer, but the biblical answer I want to give to you tonight is because of ir- irresistible grace. Irresistible grace is the sole cause for these different reactions and responses. Unconditional election is the work of God the Father. Limited atonement, which we looked at last week, is the work of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. And irresistible grace is the work of the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity. And the Holy Spirit's effectual or efficacious work is the work applied to the benefits of Christ. Let me repeat that. The Holy Spirit's efficacious work is to apply the benefits of Christ's work to, as Rich said tonight, those who are elect, the people to whom Jesus has redeemed. Now, as we continue to follow this acronym that we began with, the acronym TULIP, tonight we're looking at the I of the acronym TULIP, and it simply represents irresistible grace, which refers to the way that God calls us to Jesus Christ. Now, once again, like last week, limited atonement, I said to you, wasn't really the best way to present particular atonement. Well, irresistible grace is somewhat misleading. Somewhat. For for irresistible grace does not mean, as they seem to imply, that God will coerce us kicking and screaming into heaven. Irresistible grace seems to imply that God, when he calls us and elects us, that we're going to come kicking and screaming into heaven. Now, that's really not the case. I'm going to present somebody tonight that God didn't bring him along kicking and screaming, but he really got that man's attention. And we're going to talk about that man a little bit tonight. But I want to say this. God will cause someone to do, God will not cause someone to do what he does not want to do. God will not cause someone to do something that he does not want to do. But this is not the meaning of the words irresistible grace. Really, a much better description of God's irresistible grace is efficacious grace or certain grace. Now here's why. 
When God calls us to faith in Jesus Christ, he calls us effectively. Succeeding in his purposes, beloved, to save us. God is always going to succeed in his plan. His plan for the elect is to redeem them. So again, his purpose to save us will always be effective. God always does this, though, in a way, this is critical, God always does this in a way that man likes it. He doesn't do it in a way that disturbs us. He does it in a way that we like it. God carefully changes the heart of man from evil to good. <coughs> Excuse me. He always carefully changes the heart of man from evil to good through irresistible grace. But friends, understand this. This is critical. God does not leave the heart unchanged. The heart is changed. God regenerates the man and in doing so, he changes his heart and thereby changes his nature. Actually, we could say sometimes he radically alters the character so that the man is now truly sorry for his sins. God had to radically change my nature. I was very depraved. And I was not coming to Christ until God irresistibly exercised His grace on me in order to change my heart, to regenerate me. Now let me say this. Radically altering man's character so that man is now truly sorry for his sins is what God does leaving man wanting to embrace Christ for his inequities. Now with his heart change, he, abs he abhors. He abhors the things he used to do. This is how irresistible grace or the efficacious grace of God works. Now I want to read you a magnificent quote. I read this when we were looking at the doctrines of grace and got to the doctrine of election. But I pulled it back out because I, I felt that this is so well said. One of the Puritans, Thomas Watson, said of God's effectual call, which is really what we're going to look at tonight. Irresistible grace is, is going to touch on the effectual call of God. And Thomas Watson says this, I quote, it is a sweet call. God does not force, but he draws. The freedom of man's will is not taken away, but the stubbornness of it is conquered. End of quote. I love that. Let me repeat that. God does not force, but he draws. And the freedom of the will is not taken away, but the stubbornness of it is conquered. That's very good. You see, I believe in free will. 
But I don't believe that man has a free will to choose God without God intervening first. Man does not have a free will to his salvation. God needs to bring that man to salvation. Now, allow me to illustrate what irresistible grace looks like from a couple of biblical examples. Turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 11, please. You know this story. This is the story about Lazarus. John, chapter 11. John chapter 11, verses 38 through 45. <clears throat> was anybody, I know Diane was here, and I know, I know, you were here. Yeah, Marilyn, you were here, I think. Yeah, I know you were here. Diane, you were here. Marilyn, you were here. Laura, you and I were gone. We were at uh, the Evangelical Free Church. Was anybody else here when Jim was preaching through the Gospel of John? You were here too, yes. I should have known that. Of course you were here. Nate, you weren't in Missy and... Rich, you weren't here yet? Oh, it was fantastic. <clears throat> Absolutely fantastic. And he hammered this, I'm sure, when he got to chapter 11, Jesus raising Nazareth, uh, Lazarus. excuse me. So John chapter 11, verses 38 through 45 is what I want you to see. In verse 38, it's recorded, Then Jesus, again groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone laid against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me because of the people who are standing by. I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Loosen him and let him go. Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary had seen the things Jesus did, believed in him. Now friends, this is a perfect example, biblical example, of the irresistible grace of God working. Lazarus was dead. He wasn't critically ill. Or he wasn't at the point of dying. He was already a decaying corpse. Scripture says that the stench from his rotting body was repugnant to the people present. Now recognize that the miracle of his resurrection was accomplished without human means. Recognize that. 
a miracle of his resurrection was accomplished without human means. That is, there was no medical assistance. Nobody ran in and gave him CPR. They didn't hook up a heart monitor on him. They didn't bring any resuscitation equipment in that tomb. The only power used was Christ's call. Jesus uttered a command, not an invitation, not a request. No, Jesus made no attempt to coerce Lazarus from the tomb. Jesus simply called him. Furthermore, Lazarus rendered absolutely no assistance. No assistance. He did not help one iota. Because Lazarus was incapable of assisting in any way because he was completely dead. He was rotting. He was decaying. Now, Some may argue that though Christ supplied the initial power of Lazarus' resurrection, Lazarus nevertheless had to respond to Christ's call to come forth from the tomb. Now here is where most of the confusion regarding regeneration enters the picture. Right here. Obviously, Lazarus did respond. Obviously he did. He came out of the tomb in obedience to Jesus' call. Yes? We all agree? Yes. Okay. But Lazarus came out of the tomb only after life flowed anew in Lazarus' body did he become active. I'm I'm stopping on purpose. I want you to key in on that. Lazarus came out of the tomb only after life flowed anew in his body did he become active. Lazarus acted, he responded, he came forth from the tomb. But the crucial point is that he did none of those things while he was still dead. He did not respond to the call of Christ until after he had been made alive. His restoration to new life preceded his response. Now, in a like manner, that's how we step out of the tomb of spiritual death. Remember, beloved, we're dead in trespasses and sin. We're dead. Pre-regeneration, we're dead. And because we are made alive or quickened to life, as Ephesians 2.1 says, we also respond when we hear the call of Christ. Just like Lazarus, we do respond. But our regeneration does not preclude such a response. No, regeneration is designed to make this response not only possible, but certain. The fact is 
that unless we first receive the grace of regeneration, we will not and cannot respond to the gospel in a positive way. It's impossible. Regeneration must come first before there can be any positive response to faith. Now, weeks ago, maybe even months ago, do you remember me asking you, I just kind of threw a question out there during our study, and I said, what comes first, regeneration or faith? Do you remember that? (coughs) What comes first, regeneration or faith? Most people say faith. God sees my faith and then he regenerates me. Uh Uh-uh. No way. Our illustration right here proves it. The irresistible grace of God went out and went forth to Lazarus. In a like way, when God calls us out of darkness into his marvelous light, his irresistible grace is out in front and it's regenerating us so that we exercise the faith to believe and trust and embrace Christ. Now, beloved, the Arminians have that backwards. The Arminians, remember, believe that God looks down the halls of time, right? And he looks down to see what Brian Wood's going to do. Okay, I see him. 27 years ago, I see him. He's going to believe, therefore I'm going to regenerate him and make him mine. Uh Uh-uh. God's irresistible grace was set alive in all of us in this room tonight. In God's irresistible grace and by the power of His Holy Spirit regenerated us first and then we exercise the faith and the belief and the trust. Praise God. I want to say this again and may it never be. God is not subject to man. Oh, beloved. (laughs) If we get this backwards... If we turn this thing upside down on its head, it makes God subject to man. No, 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 no. Our great, awesome, majestic, holy, righteous God in whom there is no darkness at all. He is the one responsible all the way through for our salvation. We're subject to God. Praise God that we're in Christ sitting here tonight. Unfortunately, Arminians reverse the order, as I said to you, in salvation. It has faith preceding regeneration. The sinner who is dead in trespasses and sins and in bondage to sin must somehow shed his chains, revive his spiritual vitality, and exercise faith so that he or she can be born again. Now, if that's the case, it makes regeneration a reward. Did you catch that? If that's the case, it makes regeneration a reward. But that's not the case. (laughs) 
What is so sad about this theological system is that it's unsupported by Scripture. Now allow me to show you two more biblical examples of irresistible grace. This one you're very familiar with. Turn to Acts chapter 9, please. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. A very familiar passage to you all. Everybody there? Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. That's another example of irresistible grace. Now, Some may think that was kind of harsh. I agree. God used what he needed to use to get Paul's attention to bring Paul to faith in Christ. Now let's look at another one, a much softer, gentler one. Go over to Acts chapter 16, please. Does anybody know the name of the Lady of Purple? Who? Lydia. Yes. Where's she from? I think so. I believe so. Maybe she was from uh, uh, Thyatira. I don't know. I know she was there at this time. Everybody there? Acts chapter 16, verse 14. This is a beautiful example of irresistible grace. Now, a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshiped God. Now, look look at this next phrase. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. The Lord opened her heart. Lydia did not open her heart. Paul did not strike himself down to the ground. Both examples, once again, of irresistible grace. God's irresistible grace. Friends, these are biblical illustrations of efficacious grace. I like that. Efficacious grace. 
The Lord called Paul with an abrupt call and the Lord called Lydia with a quiet call. So what the unregenerated person desperately needs in order to come to faith is regeneration. Regeneration is an absolute must and it has to come first. Unless God changes, beloved, the dispositions of our sinful hearts, unless God changes the dispositions of our sinful hearts, we will never choose to cooperate with grace or embrace Christ in faith. These are the very things to which the flesh is indisposed. If God merely offers to change my heart, what will that accomplish for me as long as my heart remains opposed to God? Let me repeat that. If God merely offers to change my heart, what will that accomplish for me as long as my heart remains opposed to God? If God offers me grace while I'm a slave of sin and still in the flesh, what good is the offer? Beloved, saving grace does not offer liberation. It liberates. Saving grace does not merely offer regeneration. It regenerates. That is what makes grace so gracious. Grace liberates and grace regenerates. Simply put, God does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Now the doctrine of irresistible grace has been historically called the effectual call by theologians. Therefore, I want to discuss this effectual call that has brought every true believer to faith in Christ. We just saw three examples of irresistible grace and the effectual call of God on three men. They came to faith. Now, I begin by saying that there are two kinds of calls. Anybody know them before I give them to you? There's two kinds of calls. Anybody know what those calls are? general or effectual or specific call. Same thing. We've got the general call and we've got a specific call. The first call, the general call, is external and universal, meaning it is an invitation to all people to repent of sin, to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Now allow me to illustrate this. Turn, well, you know it. You don't have to turn there. You can write this in your notes. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Another one, Matthew twenty-two fourteen. You all know this. Many are called, but few are chosen. One more, John seven thirty-seven. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Now those are examples of the general call that goes to all humanity. Mm-hmm. I even read them, Marilyn. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, 
All you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Matthew twenty-two fourteen. Many are called, few are chosen. And John seven thirty-seven. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Now again, these are examples of the general call. At Pentecost, when Peter preached the first sermon of the Christian era, likewise extending a general call to believe on Jesus, we are told that on that occasion in Jerusalem, this is what happened. The Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya adjoining Syrian, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, and we hear them speaking in their own tongues the wonderful work of God. You can find that in Acts chapter 2, 9 for 11. Now, when Peter issued the call, the call was general. It was general to all of those that were there. It was a universal, meaning it went out to everyone present. Now, anyone who wanted to respond could have come to Christ and be saved. Now, the difficulty with this general call is this. It's external. This universal call is that if people are left to themselves, no one would actually respond to it. Once again, why is that? Remember what John 3.19 said? The Lord said this. This is the condemnation, that the light is coming into the world and men love darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. You see, men need the specific special call. Men need the effectual call to enlighten them to regeneration. So the second kind of a call is internal. It's specific. It's effectual. It's effective. But without it, no man's coming to faith. The general call, the universal call, is not going to bring men to faith. Something has to take place. It needs to have the effectual call. It needs God's irresistible grace added to it. So let's suffice it to say, not only this effectual call, it not only issues the invitation, but it also provides the willingness or the ability to respond. That's the difference. It is a case of God bringing spiritual life to those without the call would remain spiritually dead forever. God has to step in. Friends, the effectual call. It's effectual because in it and by it, God affects exactly what he intends. What does he intend? To make the recipient a product of his irresistible grace. His intentions and purpose are to make those men and women his elect. Now again, if you really want to take this even further, all you got to do is remember all of this took place before the world began, before anything was created. In real time, each one of us in real time 
the effectual call came to us. To each one of us, differently, different place, different time, different way. But the same thing took place for every man and woman in Christ Jesus. The irresistible grace of God was brought by the effectual call of God. It was a specific invitation that also brought the results. And what it were the results? We believed. To put it another way, the quickening of the spiritually dead souls to spiritual life. Ephesians 2.1 The making alive of spiritually dead souls to spiritual life. That's what the effectual call did. And this effectual call or calling refers to the Holy Spirit's inward and secret operation on the soul. Once again, like always, the triune God is responsible. All three members of the triune God were responsible in our salvation. This is what the Holy Spirit does and does best. The Holy Spirit operates through the preaching and teaching of the Word of God to call to faith those whom God previously predestined to salvation for whom Christ specifically died. Limited atonement. Unconditional election. All took place ahead of the irresistible grace of God. Beloved, apart from these three actions, the act of God predetermining, the work of Christ in atoning, and the power of the Holy Spirit in calling, there would be no hope for anyone. No one. No hope for anybody. Nobody's exempt from the power of the triune God in the salvation of our souls. It takes God and God alone. You see, apart from these three actions, no one would be saved. But because of these actions, because of God's sovereign grace, even the worst of rebels may be turned from his or her folly to Christ. Allow me to illustrate this again from Scripture. Turn over to Romans chapter 1, please. Were you going to ask something? Were you getting ready to ask something? Were you getting ready to ask me something? Were you getting ready here? Just Were you raising your hand to ask me something? Okay. Turn to Romans chapter 1, please. Romans chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. I'm just going to pick it up in verse 1. We want to look at verses 5 through 7. That's what we want to key in on, but I'm going to start in verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, notice what what he says, called to be an apostle, 
Time out. He was called to be that apostle when? On that road to Damascus. When the irresistible grace and the effectual call of God came upon his life. In real time. In Paul's real time. Again, though, all of that also took place before the foundation of the world. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle. Look at this. Separated to the gospel of God. He was certainly separated, wasn't he? Holy cow. Which God promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. Among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. Perfect example of the effectual call and irresistible grace of God. Right there. Romans 1. Go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9. First Corinthians chapter one, verse nine is what we want to key in on. But once again, I'm going to pick it up in verse one. First Corinthians chapter one, verse one through nine. Paul, here it is again, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of who? Will of God. That's pretty powerful, isn't it? Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sothenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified, set apart, set apart in Christ Jesus. Look what it says next. Called to be saints with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God, which was what? Given to you. Who by? By Jesus Christ. Can't escape it, can you? Verse 5, that you were enriched in everything by Him. Enriched by who? By Him. in all utterances and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end. There's the perseverance of the saints, eternal security, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now look what he says. God is faithful by whom you were what? called into fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Who did it? God. 
That's the effectual call of God once again by his irresistible grace. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Everybody there? Everybody there? The great apostle Paul says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling which you were called. Once again, Paul's talking about the irresistible grace of God and the effectual call of God. He's writing to a group of believers, the church in Ephesus. They were the called out ones. And they had the irresistible grace of God shed abroad in their hearts when God called them with an effectual call. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, please. Second Timothy chapter one verses eight and nine is what we want to key in on. I'm going to pick it up in verse seven. Everybody there? Verse seven. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. Verse 9 is packed with theology, isn't it? It's packed with the doctrines of grace. It's packed with reform theology. It's packed with Calvinism. Paul was a Calvinist. He was. A Biblicist anyways, right? Let's look at that verse 9 one more time. Who saved us, God, by the power of God, who saved us and called us with a holy calling, meaning a calling set apart, a sanctified calling, not according to our works. That makes it very clear, doesn't it? Not according to anything you did, but according to God's own purpose and His grace, which was given us, given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. I think we should be able to close our Bibles and go home. It's so clear. The irresistible grace of God and the effectual call of God 
has to take place in our hearts to regenerate us so that we can exercise faith, so that we can believe. How about one more? Second Peter, Second Peter one ten. Oh, I, I I love this part of scripture. Everybody there? Second Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Peter says this, Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly. Catch that? Into the everlasting kingdom. Catch that? Whose kingdom? Of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse 10, therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. Read, read the NASB. Yeah. 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 Thank you for reading it. I'm the first to say I, I've been using this New King James for 27 years and I've never been able to switch back over to the NASB. The NASB is what I use when I'm studying or the ESV. Those are a little more pure, a little more accurate for a word-for-word -word translation. But uh, nothing wrong with the King James. So Now the NIV, the North Idaho version? Do you? Or the nearly inspired version? Actually, I got to be honest. I never heard of the NIV until I got here 23 years ago. Honestly, I didn't. As someone who was at First Baptist Church had the NIV, and I said, "The what? Yeah, the NIV." Well, well that's what I called it. I remember in, I was teaching through Romans, and they said, "Yeah, the New International Version." Really, read that to me again. They read to me again. And I went, "Wow, that must be the North Idaho version." <laughs> oh goodness. Loved ones, each one of these texts we just looked at, and many others, the call of God effectively, effectively saves those to whom it is addressed. That's the key. The key. The call of God effectively, the effectual call of God effectively saves those to whom it is addressed. And the effectual calling is the point at which the eternal foreknowledge and eternal predestination of God applies to us in real time. And then the call starts the process by which the individual is drawn from sin to faith in Christ. Why is this internal and specific call so effective? Why is that? Why is this internal specific call so effective? Anybody have any thoughts?
It's true. Yeah. Why is this internal and specific call so effective? Pretty simple. Here it is. The reason the effectual call is so effective is it because it's God's call. The reason it's so effective is it is God's call. It's not man calling man. It's God's call. It issues from God's call and everything that issues from God's call accomplishes that for which it is sent, period. My response to all of this is thank God for his effectual call. So at the very start of all that we have been looking at from the first night we gathered, I said to you, my heart, my purpose in presenting the doctrines of grace to you is that you will fall in love with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit that much more. That your love and your affections for him will be that much greater when you see what he has done for you and you had nothing to do with it. The effectual call of God is so effective is because it's God's call. It's his. Remember when Jesus said to the apostles, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Remember that? He was talking about the effectual call of God. You didn't choose God. We chose you. Thank God for the irresistible grace, for without it, no one would be saved. Now, I want to read you something from an outstanding book that is going to be in my bibliography. <clears throat> Next week, we are done. I'm going to hand out two things to you next week. My bibliography, the resources, everything that I used for this study. There's a lot of other stuff out there that is still recommendable, but I'm giving you what I used to put all this together. One of the books I used was The Reformed Doctrine of Predestination by a man named Lorraine Bettner. It's a classic. I highly recommend you get this book. The other one is the one that Jeff's got. I've got an old edition. That is going to be on my bibliography also, but Jeff has the newer edition. I highly recommend that book also. And then any other book that's on that list that I'll give you next week. Any of them, they're outstanding. One more thing I'm going to give you next week is I'm going to give you an outline of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. It's an exegetical study. I think it's just three pages long. I thought you've been so patient with me that to bring you back, not just next week, but then the next week after to go through those three pages, I thought you might want to just do it at home. If you want me to walk you through it, I would. I'd be honored. If not, take it home. Please read it. Next week, what I bring you. So it's Ephesians 2, 8, 9. It is in discussion to the debate. What is the gift speaking of in Ephesians 2, 8, 9? Is it grace? Is it faith? Is it both? 
There's many people who believe the thing that Paul's talking about in Ephesians 2 is grace is the gift, not faith. I wanted to show you exegetically why it's both, including faith. So that's what I did. I presented a three-page study. Now, in closing tonight, I want to read this to you. Regarding the effectual call of God, I quote, Dr. B.B. Warfield. Anybody know who B.B. Warfield is? Great man of God. Anybody know? B.B. Warfield. Benjamin Warfield. He was a professor of theology, I believe at Princeton. Princeton? That's what I thought. Was he before Charles Hodge? Or after? About the same time? Warfield? Great men of God. You get anything that Benjamin Warfield, B.B. Warfield wrote, get it. Dr. Warfield says this, and the man's quoting him, sinful man stands in need. Listen to this. Not of inducements or assistance to save himself, but precisely of saving. And Jesus Christ has come not to advise or urge or woo or help him to save himself, but to save him, end of quote. That's good. That's good. This man, Lorraine Bentner, says this, in the scriptures, this change is called a regeneration. Titus 3.5, we'll go there and end with that. A spiritual resurrection which is wrought by the same mighty power with which God wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Ephesians 1, 19 and 20. A calling out of darkness into God's marvelous light, 1 Peter 2, 9. And a passing out of the death into life, John 5, 24. A new birth, John 3, 3. A making alive, Colossians 2, 13. And we could also put Ephesians 2, 1. A taking away of the heart of stone and given a heart of flesh, Ezekiel 11.19. And the subject of the change is said to be a new creature, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Such descriptions completely refute Arminian notion that regeneration is primarily man's act, end of quote. Isn't that good? Let's go over to Titus chapter 3 real quick. We'll close with that tonight. Titus leaves no doubt, no doubt that grace is a work of God. In Titus chapter 3, verses 5, 6, and 7, we find this recorded by the Apostle Paul. He says, not of works of righteousness which we have done, but according to God's mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Christ our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Amen. Let's close in a word of prayer.
Father, again, we thank you so very much for this magnificent doctrine that we call irresistible grace. Father, the fact of the matter is your grace is irresistible. It's irresistible because you make it so sweet, as Thomas Watson said. You make it so sweet for us to embrace it that we can't help but do that. Father, thank you that you would present to us such a magnificent, beautiful, beautiful invitation and the means to embrace it. Thank you for that effectual call that went out to each and every one of us individually at a specific time. And Father, thank you very much that all of what we have gone through began before the foundation of the world and that you brought it all to fruition for each and every one of us here tonight at a specific time through the irresistible grace and effectual call of God being shed upon us. We bow before you once again to say thank you. We exalt your holy, righteous name and we glorify you, Father, for you alone deserve that glory. And we pray this once again in the matchless name of your precious and most dearest Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and God's people said, Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.